I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas about God, philosophy, and an idea called deconstruction. Deconstruction is a theory that says don't trust the categories that you have at hand. Don't trust this reliable drawer full of tools that you think you have when you want to think about the world because they are much more slippery and they bleed into each other and things are not as clear and distinct as you think they are. So to deconstruct something is to just look at it very, very closely and you'll realize how porous and multiplex and ambiguous it really is. In the spring of 1992, Cambridge University announced that it would give an honorary degree to the French philosopher Jacques Derrida. It was an honor that seemed richly deserved. Derrida had invented the widely influential concept of deconstruction. But there was an immediate outcry from within the university and from an international group of academics who sent a letter of protest to the Times of London. Derrida, these letter writers said, was no more than a kind of Dadaist, a jokester whose work consisted mainly of tricks, puns, and gimmicks. His writings, the letter went on, failed to meet accepted standards of clarity and rigor and were replete with semi-intelligible attacks on the values of reason, truth, and scholarship. Derrida got the degree anyway, after the matter was put to a vote at Cambridge. However, his reputation in the English-speaking world continued to be shadowed by charges of nihilism and relativism that were often made against him. Even when he died in 2004, the New York Times obituary, reprinted in Canada by the Globe and Mail, left the impression that his main legacy was to have sapped the morale of Western civilization. John Caputo disagrees. He's Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at Villanova University in suburban Philadelphia and at Syracuse University. In 1997, he published The Prayers and Tears of Jacques Derrida, in which he worked out an intuition that went back to his first encounter with deconstruction years before. From the start, I said to myself, there is something religious about this guy, even though for all the world he looked like a kind of atheistic, secular, and even, and th- but this was a superficial impression, even relativistic, anarchistic thinker. I thought, no, 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 it's not that. There's a religious element here. I'm sure of it. So I started trying to point it out. And then he did me the very great favor of pointing it out himself later on. On Ideas Today, John Caputo tells his story and presents his case for Derrida's theological significance. The program continues our series, After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion, by David Cayley. It was once an axiom of the science of sociology that as societies become more modern, they become more secular. The gods of traditional religions live on as private fetishes, wrote American theologian Harvey Cox in 1965, but they play no role whatsoever in the public life of the secular metropolis. By the 1980s, serious doubts had begun to develop about this idea. 
evangelical and fundamentalist Christianity had begun to play a crucial role in American politics. The Islamic revival, following the Iranian Revolution, was playing an even more prominent role in Muslim countries. Traditional Judaism was resurgent in Israel. This return of religion has been well publicized, but less often remarked has been another return of religion, the so-called theological turn in contemporary philosophy. With the collapse of secular utopias, symbolized by the end of communism, theology seemed to take on a new life and a new importance. Secular versions of the kingdom of God had failed. Perhaps it was time to re-examine the religion in which those failed utopias had their source. The distinction between a secular public sphere and a private religious realm began to fray. Thinkers as diverse as Charles Taylor and René Girard offered persuasive reasons for viewing modern society as a child of religion. Philosophers began to write about St. Augustine and St. Paul. Reconsideration of religion became a critical task within philosophy. In the English-speaking world, John Caputo has been a key figure in philosophy's theological turn as well as introducing Jacques Derrida's philosophy of deconstruction into theology, he has also been one of the ancestors of what is sometimes called weak theology, a non-dogmatic style that sets aside power and glory and takes seriously the idea that God is present to human beings as a man nailed to a cross. A prolific writer with a genial and colloquial style that belies its subtlety and sophistication, he has also tried to do something relatively rare in philosophy, address the general reader and not just his colleagues. I called on John Caputo, or Jack, as he told me he preferred to be known, at the end of 2011. We sat amidst the evidence of frequent visits from grandchildren in his home in the western suburbs of Philadelphia. He began by telling me about his Catholic education, the traditional Latin curriculum centered on the medieval theology of Thomas Aquinas, but imparted to him at a time in the early 1960s when the Second Vatican Council was convening in Rome, and everything was about to change. We learned it in that moment, a moment of transition when it was about to when Vatican II would come along and sort of open the windows of the church. And the, the joke, of course, being that Vatican II opened the windows and then everybody jumped out. <laughs> and that's, that, to a great extent, happened, I think, actually. But I was raised in a Catholicism that had not changed since the Council of Trent. It had been unchanged for 400 years. And Pius XII was the Pope, and he really was the Pope, and he ruled with an iron fist. And I went into a, a Catholic religious order in 1958, and I spent 15 months leading what was a, a, literally a medieval monastic life, for 15 months of, of novitiate, in which we just kept silent mo most of the day, and we read, and we worked, and we studied just a couple of hours of recreation twice a week, which when we got to talk. And otherwise, I mean, it was like a monastic life. Jack Caputo left his religious order in 1962, 
one of those who jumped out of the window. He trained as a philosopher and wrote first on the thought of Martin Heidegger and its roots in medieval mysticism. Then he discovered Jacques Derrida and the approach to philosophy that Derrida had named deconstruction. And this way of thinking, Caputo told me, won his heart. Deconstruction is a theory that says don't trust the categories that you have at hand. Don't trust this reliable drawer full of tools that you think you have when you want to think about the world because they are much more slippery and they bleed into each other and things are not as clear and distinct as you think they are. So to deconstruct something is to just look at it very, very closely and you'll realize how porous and multiplex and ambiguous it really is. And that's not bad. That's an opening to the future. That means that a belief or a practice or an institution, just like a work of art, is not fixed within irrevocable boundaries. It has a future. It's able to be reinvented. It's able to be reconceived, reconstructed, reimagined. And consequently, this is my shtick. My shtick is there's a religious element in Derrida and in deconstruction in particular because you can't make a hard distinction between religious and secular, theism and atheism, faith and knowledge. Those are distinctions that acquired firmness and rigidity, particularly in modernity. They weren't quite as fixed as they are now before modernity. And then deconstruction, which is popularly called postmodernism, although Derrida hated that word. It's actually not such a bad word. I mean, he shouldn't have hated it so much. You know, It's okay to hate it a little bit because it got popular, and so it, there's a certain thoughtlessness when things become really popular. It becomes a slogan or jargon. But if you think about it carefully, postmodern is actually not a bad word because it means the critique of modernity sense that there are fixed and rigid distinctions in the categories that we use to think about the world. How do you show that? Well, just take any word you want and analyze it very carefully. Look at its history and you'll discover its ambiguity. And its ambiguity is uh, its richness. It's not a fault. In modernity, ambiguity is a fault. For deconstruction, is a sign that a thing has a future. When something is completely clear, it's dead. It's over. If you want to know the, exhaustively know the meaning of a word, well, then what you need is a dead language that nobody's using anymore. Then you can just track down. You can put it all on a computer, track down every usage, list all the usages, and you say, that's it. That's what that word means. It has no future. Nobody speaks it anymore. It's over. But any living language, you could never say that. But anything... That's what deconstruction is. And consequently, it's a magnificent resource for thinking about a tradition, particularly for thinking about big traditions, you know, like Catholicism with authoritarian structures. A tradition worthy of the name contains something that can't be contained by the rules and structures and, and, and versions of it that we have up to now. It contains something uncontainable. It contains a future can be reinvented. It's like a great work of art. What's the meaning of Hamlet? 
There's no meaning of Hamlet. There's a history of Hamlet. And Hamlet is Hamlet because it has a future. When something is utterly contained within its own time, if somebody does something that's so timely that as soon as the context changes, it loses its point and nobody can understand it anymore. It's so time-bound that it has no future. So deconstruction deals with things that have a future and that therefore belong to the depths of the tradition. So it's the opposite of what people say about it. See, people say it just destroys tradition. It doesn't destroy tradition. It only destroys tradition if you have an ultra-conservative, rigid concept of tradition. And that kind of tradition we should destroy. But it reopens the tradition in a way that makes people nervous. And it's risky. It is risky. Jacques Derrida was introduced to the English-speaking world at a conference at Johns Hopkins University in 1965. And for many years thereafter, deconstruction was very much a la mode in fields like literary studies. Outside these circles, however, Derrida's name often evoked scandal. American historian Richard Wolin, writing in the New York Review of Books, called him a nihilist. Others claimed that Derrida's attempt to destabilize the meanings of words and expose the intricate inner workings of texts could only end in a corrosive cynicism. But this, obviously, was not how Derrida saw things. When he was given an honorary degree by the New School for Social Research in 1989, he took the occasion to point out that deconstruction was a philosophy, as he put it, of and for institutions, a way for them to avoid becoming too set in their ways by a constant but always amused self-criticism. That was also how Jack Caputo saw deconstruction, as a way forward for the institution in which he had been raised, the Roman Catholic Church, an institution which had, in his view, reduced a living tradition to a dead letter. It had digested Thomas Aquinas into a series of formulae that were fixed and irreformable, which there was nothing to do except repeat. So it was paralyzing. All you could do was repeat these formulae the way they had been distilled into these manuals that we were working with. And they were they killed it. When I learned to read Latin and I went back to Aquinas and and it was tremendously ambiguous, you know, it was way more complicated than these manuals made it look like. And it was much richer. So if you, when you go back to a text, you discover the text is never merely the way it's, it's been received or the way it gets distilled or the way it gets contracted. And that's what a tradition is. That's what an institution is. It's what works of art are. It's what philosophy is. So for me, philosophy is deconstruction. And what, what interested me was religion. And because of my own uh, situation, my own upbringing, Christianity. And I saw Christianity as an interesting way to look at deconstruction, but I also saw deconstruction as an interesting way to look at Christianity, particularly the New Testament, and particularly the figure of Jesus in the New Testament, who is a deconstructor. Right? You know, he's, he's a troublemaker. He breaks the letter of the law. He uh, pushes the envelope. He gets in trouble. He costs himself quite a great deal of trouble with the things that he said and the way that he said it. He did not suffer fools gladly. 
he had a sharp tongue, and he got bought himself a lot of trouble with the way he went around deconstructing things. He, was he destroying them? No, he was reinventing them, re, re, reopening them. So I thought, this figure of deconstruction that I see in Derrida seems to me to be like what we always think about when we think of the kingdom of God and this paradoxical, strange, dazzling, topsy-turvy vision of things. The last shall be first, and the insiders are outsiders, and dining with sinners, and and the whole uh, systematic uh, privileging of the, of the outsider, which is impossible. You know, it's impossible. If you think about it, the Sermon on the Mount is the most compromised document in our possession because it's impossible. What it asks us to do is impossible. To turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, to sell everything we have and give it to the poor, it is impossible. And that's, it turns out, one of the uh, leitmotifs of Derrida. Derrida would like to say, what's really interesting is what's impossible. If it's possible, it's that's mediocre. What's interesting, what impassions us, is what he called the impossible, the thing that doesn't seem possible. An instance of the impossible in Jacques Derrida's thought is the structure of gift-giving. Gifts are something we talk about and seem to believe in, and yet the actual giving of a gift, Jack Caputo says, is impossible. When I give you a gift, the end result would be that you have something that you didn't have before, and I lack something that I had previously. But what in fact happens when I give you a gift is you say, I don't know how to thank you. And I say, well, you don't have to thank me. It's a gift. It's yours. I will be forever in your debt. I mean, the larger the gift is, the more this phenomenon increases. So you see what happens when you give a gift. Is it, The gift starts to annul itself as soon as you give it. So it's auto-deconstructing. What's happening to you is you're acquiring a debt. So you say, oh, yes, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. But you're thinking to yourself, I must repay this debt. I can't just simply give it back. That would be rude. But I will, at the appropriate time, in the appropriate way, not too much, not too little, repay the debt with another gift. I, on the other hand, who have given you something and should come out behind in this exchange, have an enormous sense of being just so generous and gracious. And the more ungrateful you are, the more generous I feel myself to be. Right? The more I congratulate myself on giving something to this ungrateful wretch who doesn't have the common courtesy to say thank you. So there's a circle here that you can't escape. And Derrida says, this is true. You can't escape this exchange. And sometimes we, of course, regularize exchange. So at Christmas time, we exchange gifts. So that, and we try to keep it all in balance. You don't want to humiliate someone by giving them much more than they give you back in return. So it's a very delicate protocol. So sometimes we just talk about exchanging gifts. Well, the true gift would not be exchange. It would be given without return. Right? It would be an expenditure without return, with no intention of returning anyway. So you start looking at for ways to come up with a pure gift. 
And Derrida says, well, it's a question not so much of there actually being a pure gift somewhere, because there isn't, not so long as people are people, not so long as we pull on our pants one leg at a time. When I give you something, I'm going to feel good about my generosity and you're going to feel indebted. That's just a fact. But the pure gift is like a kind of pure imperative or desire. So he says, know how it works. Know about this circle. But give anyway. Give. Knowing this is this will happen. But you desire this pure gift, even though you know, in fact, it won't happen. So he says, it's the impossible. It won't happen. But it drives you. It, it propels you. It, it impassions you the desire for the pure gift. And then he says this circle will become wider and wider and more generous. The more we desire the pure gift, the more these circles will be less uh, economic and they'll become more and more open-ended and generous. So, know the gift is impossible, then give. Jack Caputo believes that what he calls the logic of the impossible has a wide application within theology. Forgiveness can be shown to be impossible in the same way as the giving of a gift. And faith, hope, and charity, known to Roman Catholic tradition as the theological virtues, well, they follow this logic too, Caputo says. When is faith really faith? When it's completely credible? Well, then it's not much faith. That's just a good investment. If it's, if it's credible, it's just, that's what stock investors are looking for, right? So a credible investment that looks like it's going to pay a return. You don't need so much faith. When is faith faith? When is starting to look incredible? When is starting to look impossible? When is hope hope? When is hopeless? If you've got really good expectations and grounds for hoping, there's not much hope involved. It's, it's just a good bet. But St. Paul speaks about hope against hope. Derrida couldn't have written it any better. Couldn't have, couldn't have said it any better. And then how about love? When you love people who love you back, big deal. Even the mafia does that, right? They have their circle of friends. How about loving someone who hates you? Perfect New Testament, perfect deconstruction. It's exactly the same structure. Loving those who don't love you in return. And you're back to the Sermon on the Mount. And you're back to the deep paradox that Christianity demands from us, which is systematically compromised. Loving your enemies. Can you run a department of defense that way? It's impossible. But it's what Derrida would call the impossible. It's what we desire. So my shtick has been always to say to my religious friends, Christianity works like the logic of deconstruction. And I say to my secular friends, and this causes me at least as much trouble, maybe more, there's a deeply religious element in Derrida and in deconstruction. There's a passion for the impossible. It's not simply a secular philosophy. It is a secular philosophy, but it's not simply a secular philosophy. And so what that means is there's no rigid distinction between secular and religious, and no rigid distinction between philosophy and theology, which is, again, exactly what this critique of modernity would predict. 
Deconstruction is religious in its passion for the impossible, Jack Caputo says. But the impossible, by definition, cannot occur, however much we desire it and however much this desire structures our lives, our languages, our institutions. Faith, on the other hand, claims that the impossible is possible, that all things are possible with God, that the Messiah will come, or for Christians, come again, that justice will roll like a river, that peace will reign. And here, Caputo admits, there is an important difference between Yehida and the Christian who expects the second coming of the Messiah. At the moment at which the Messiah shows up, the future is over. The Messiah is the hope and the expectation of the just one coming. Well, justice is always coming. You know, it never arrives. It arrives only momentarily, sporadically, instantaneously in a given act or deed. But justice doesn't rule the way the kingdom of God is what we're hoping and praying for. The rule of God is what we hope and expect. If and when the rule of God ever were established, that would be the end of history. Well, deconstruction is a philosophy of history of the world, and so the future is always, in principle, open. So the Messiah is the very structure of hope and expectation. And there are even midrash like that, that where there is the Messiah, is, the whole idea of the Messiah is that he doesn't show up. If he shows up, he ruins everything. There's nothing left to do at that point except throw the tools on the truck. History is over, the end has been accomplished, and it's all over. But in a theory of time and history, the Messiah is always expected. Now, there's an interesting uh, sort of ironic verification of this in Christianity where the Messiah did show up. Because when he arrived and died, to everyone's surprise, as far as we can tell, the disciples were shocked at the crucifixion and they scattered. They thought this was the onset of the kingdom of God, but he was murdered and apparently defeated. And then in the Christian narrative, he's resurrected and goes to his father and says, I'll be back. Now, the early history of Christianity interpreted that quite literally, and they thought in a few weeks, a few months, a year or two, and then some of them started to die, and the Thessalonians write to Paul, and they say, Paul, what's going on? Some of the, of the brothers are dying, and he hasn't come yet. And Paul, ever resourceful theologian that he was, just sat down and he said, look, what's going to happen is he's going to come down on a cloud, and then he's going to open up all the graves, and then we're going to join him on the cloud and rise again with him. And then more time went by, and more time went by. And as an interesting, there was a man named Abbe Loisy, who was an ex-priest and, and historian of early Christianity. As he said, uh, he says, the early Christians were expecting the return of Jesus. What they got was the church. <laughs> Which is a great line. Yeah. So even in Christianity where the Messiah has come, the structure of Christianity, the fact that there is Christianity at all, is based upon wanting him to come again. So the Messiah structurally is always to come. Messianic expectation 
in Jack Caputo's view, reflects what he calls the structure of human experience. And this is true for him of religion generally. It's rooted in the way things are for sentient, desiring, time-bound beings. This leads him to downplay what some take to be the defining feature of religion, faith in some supernatural agency. He sees faith as a stance human beings take, and one which is necessary in many walks of life, not just religion. Regardless of what our particular beliefs are, there's a deeper faith which drives everything. And that faith drives not only what we call religious beliefs, it also drives reason. If you don't have a stereotypical idea of what uh, science is, because people in humanities had sort of stereotypes of what science is, if you actually have met a scientist or you, or you read anything about science or the history of science or scientific practice and how scientists go about their work, you understand, first of all, how deeply mysterious things are in science, uh, which we, we would say is supposed to be a religious property, mystery, deeply mysterious, and also how much faith it requires to pursue a hunch, to pursue an intuition. So faith drives what we call religion or theology, but it also drives reason. It drives politics. You can see today how much faith it requires to engage in political action. Not religious belief, but faith. So I think faith is a deep structure that cuts beneath the distinction between religion and theology, religious and secular, between politics and uh, religion. I think it's at work in everything. It's at work in art. An artist has to have a deep faith in their uh, vision, in, in their work, in the possibility of something new. So I don't think faith is law-abiding. I don't think it abides by the, the rules we make for it. I don't think it abides by the distinction between faith and reason or religion, religious and secular. I think it's one of the deep structures of our existence. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159. Today we continue our series, After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion. It's presented by David Cayley. Jack Caputo calls faith a deep structure of our existence, something that reaches deeper than mere belief. And this applies, for Caputo, to faith in God as well. God names an element in our experience, not a being that we can locate and define. So when we pray, he says, we are not petitioning some mighty sovereign with the power to grant our wishes. We're adopting an orientation to the future. I think that prayer comes back to, again, this, the, the logic or the grammar of the to come. Because I think the paradigmatic prayer is the one that ends the New Testament at the end of the book Revelation, when the author says, come. I think the prayer of all prayers is come. The call for, well, in, in the New Testament, the call for Jesus to return, the call for the Messiah to come. 
And I think that's emblematic of what we're saying, because we're calling for justice, we're calling for love, we're calling for peace, we're calling for democracy, we're calling for one thing or another. But when we say come, we're giving word to our hope and expectation that revolves around the, the very structure of the to come, the advent of what's coming. So when we pray, I think we are opening ourselves up to the future, to what we desire, what we hope for, what we expect. I think that's the paradigmatic prayer. Now, one of the phenomena that interests me, because you see it in Derrida, is the phenomenon of prayer without God. Can you pray without God, without believing in God? And I think, oh, you, absolutely you can. You know, in fact, it makes it more interesting. It gives it a little more teeth. An example of an atheist prayer is a book of Jacques Derrida's called Circumfession. The title makes reference, among other things, to the Confessions of St. Augustine. Augustine lived between the years 350 and 430, and probably stands second only to St. Paul as a shaping influence on Latin and Catholic Christianity. He was born, like Jacques Derrida, in present-day Algeria, and served there as a bishop. His Confessions, which relates his conversion to Christianity, is viewed by many as the first Western autobiography. Jacques Derrida, in Circumfession, takes Augustine's book as his model. He wrote a kind of, you know, what you and I might just call a riff on Augustine's Confessions. He wrote a kind of autobiography in the mode of Augustine's Confessions. And he could do this for sort of fortuitous reasons, that he was born in the place where Augustine lived and, and died. He grew up on the Rue Saint-Augustin. There was all this Augustine in, in the Algerian culture in the, in the 40s. So there were these sort of accidental convergences. So Derrida state restages the Confessions. And people often say the uh, Confessions are the first autobiography. What it really is, rhetorically, if, if you examine the structure, it's a prayer. He's speaking to God. And we sort of, if you staged it, the reader sort of comes in to the Confessions and Augustine's back is to you. And he's speaking to te, to you. To God. Well, Derrida restages that. And when you read this book that he calls Circumfession, you know, the Jewish circumcision and the Christian confession, he's speaking to someone who he's saying in French, to you. His back is to us. And he's praying. And he speaks about his prayer which he says no one ever understood before, not even his mother, who should have known. And he says, without understanding that he's a man of prayer, you won't understand his thought. Now, I was on a plane when I was reading this book for the first time. I, I found the book, and I was going to a conference or coming home from a conference, and I was 30,000 feet in the air. 
And I wanted to run up to the pilot. I mean, it was this was before 9-11, so I wouldn't have been shot down in my tracks. I wanted to run up to the pilot, pound on the door, and say, stop this plane, I got to get off, I have to get to a computer, I have to write a book about this. The book that Jack Caputo knew he had to write was published in 1997 as The Prayers and Tears of Jacques Derrida, Religion Without Religion. Around the same time, Caputo brought Jacques Derrida to Villanova, a Catholic university operated, appropriately enough, by the Augustinian order, and Caputo's academic home for many years. Derrida's visits there gave Caputo and his colleagues a chance to ask their guest a question. To whom are you praying? You don't believe in God. How can you be praying? Who are you talking to? And he was very uh, whimsical, you know, and he had a twinkle in his eyes. He would say, oh, he says, uh, if I knew that, uh, I, I would know everything. <laughs> so in this book, he says, I rightly pass for an atheist. So we said, well, why don't you just say, je suis, c'est moi, I, I, I am an atheist. And he says, well, because I don't know if I'm an atheist. He says, I am an atheist. That's what they say, and they're right, but I don't know. So he says, uh, there's all these things going on within me. There's all these other voices. The voice of the atheist in me is disturbed by all the voices of faith, and the voice of faith in me is disturbed by all the, the atheistic voices, and they give each other, one another, no peace. I have no peace, he says. Now, there's a Catholic theologian who is in the school of Jean-Luc Marion who describes prayer as a wounded word. We pray because we're wounded beings. So using what Chrétien says about prayer, I say, between the two, between Augustine and Derrida, which one of those two is more wounded? What you're inclined to say is, Augustine's confessions are real. He's really confessing to God, and he really believes in God, and he's really praying. And Derrida is engaged in a riff. He's miming the scene of the confessions, but it's not for real. It's a literary conceit. And I say, I don't think so. I think that the difference between Augustine and Derrida is that Augustine knows to whom he's praying, and he believes that there's somebody there. He doesn't think that he comprehends God, of course. I mean, he thinks God is, is infinite and incomprehensible. He famously said, if you comprehend it, it's not God. So I don't think that he thinks that he comprehends God, but he, but he knows to whom he's speaking. He knows that this is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the Father of Jesus and that he prays with Jesus and with the community to the Father. So he, he knows to whom he speaks, and he firmly believes that there's somebody there to hear his prayer, and that in the end, somehow or another, in a way that he can't possibly comprehend, what God's will is will be accomplished. Derrida, on the other hand, has none of those assurances. He does not know that there's anybody there. He doesn't know that his prayers will be answered. And he's not praying in community with, he doesn't have a prayer book and he doesn't have a church and he doesn't have a community with whom he can pray and say, 
our father. There is no our for him. There's no community. He's uh, circumfessing. His confession is deeply cut by a kind of wound of non-knowing. Now, if you go back to what Chaitian says about prayer, of the two, Derrida's word is more wounded. It's more in distress. It's more, there's more of a cry, of a de profundis there. Whereas Augustine's prayer is a little more assured, a little more supported. So I think prayer doesn't have to occur inside of what we would call in ordinary language a religious community, or even within theism. I think, again, it's one of these deep structures that undermines the distinction between religious and secular, faith and reason, philosophy and theology. It's a deep structure. Jack Caputo has been influential as an interpreter of Jacques Derrida, but he has also been a theologian in his own right, developing an approach that he has sometimes called weak theology. The self-deprecating note is, I'm sure, intentional, but what the name actually refers to is not the weakness of Caputo's theology, but the weakness of God. He lays out his thinking in a book called The Weakness of God, a phrase he takes from the Apostle Paul in a letter Paul wrote to the new Christian community he had founded in the Greek city of Corinth. Paul's writing to the Corinthians who need some cheering up because they're evidently not the elite of Corinthian society. They seem to be, as he says in the very first chapter, the, the ill-born, you know, you are not well, he's not very complimentary to them. He says, you're not well-born, you know, and you're not well-educated. You're not one of these Greek philosophers. You're not part of the elite. You're not part of the 1%. You're the, the 99%. And uh, he says, but... God chose those who are ill-born to put to shame the, uh, the ones who are well-born. The weakness of God is stronger than the strength of this world. And he even uses, because he knows that the city's filled with Greek philosophers, he uses some philosophical language. And he says, God chose ta meanta, the non-beings, the nothings and nobodies. He chose the nothings and nobodies to shame ta'anta, the things that are, the powers that be, we would say. So, I say, okay, so St. Paul speaks of the weakness of God. He opposes that to the strength of this world. St. Paul also says that Jesus is the icon of God. He's the image in the world of what, if you want to know what God is, a Christian says, look at Jesus, and you'll see the properties of God uh, being manifested. So who's Jesus? He's one of those Corinthians. He's, he's one of the ill-born. He's a peasant from a dusty little town in Galilee. If you really wanted to do hardball, historical, critical stuff, he probably was illiterate. It would have been remarkable if he weren't real illiterate. He is uh, publicly executed in a shameful Roman execution. He's one of the nothings and nobodies. So how does he shame the power of the world or overcome the power of the world? Because 
the power of God emerges from his weakness. What does he say about your enemies? Love them. What does he say about trespassers? Forgive them. In every case, what Jesus says about God is not strength, but weakness. The power of powerlessness. In every case, he confronts the power of the world with love, forgiveness, peace, non-retaliation, non-violence. That's what a Christian must mean by God if Jesus is the image of God. A Christian doesn't mean what Aristotle said or Plato said. He's got to mean what the New Testament says. And what's the image of Jesus in the New Testament? It's exactly what Paul says in the first chapter of Corinthians. Now, that much is more or less orthodox. I mean, I think Bonhoeffer was arguing that. I think that a lot of Christian theologians see that. I actually go one step farther, which is not orthodox. And that is, I say, well, this is not simply a strategy. Because you could say, well, look, it's like a con game. You know, you play weakness, but really there's strength. The real strength is there in what appears to be weakness. There's real divine strength behind this weakness. Like Thomas Aquinas would say, on the cross, Jesus is crucified on the cross, but his soul was united with God in immediate intuitive unity. The whole time he's been crucified, because he's Jesus, he's God, he's the God-man. If he chose to, with a blink of one eye, and not even that, just the, a thought. He could blow those Roman soldiers into the rocks and crush them and scatter them to the four winds and come down from that cross in all of his glory, if he wanted to. He really has the strength here, but he chooses not to exert it. Well, then it's a con game. Then he's playing you. He's like a hustler, you know, who comes into and pretends he doesn't know how to play poker and then wins... Again, it takes everybody's money. Now, I think that the orthodox theology is too close to that. I want to say, no, he really doesn't have any, he doesn't have an army. He doesn't succeed in worldly terms. He gets executed. He's excluded. He's marginalized. He really is one of the nothings and the nobodies of this world. He really is. But his forgiveness, his love, his uh, spirit, is a promise of how things should be. So that the memory of Jesus is the promise of what the kingdom of God would really be like. Now, my most unorthodox thought, therefore, is this. I don't think, myself, that there's a being somewhere called God who is going to settle accounts at the end of time. I don't think that our meekness as Christians is a card we play because we know at the end of time there'll be a settling of accounts. I don't think anything like that. I think that what we mean by God is, it's not just Jesus, but Jesus is our, he, he's our guy, right? He's our example. He's, our, he's what we were nourished on. 
Uh, you could find this outside the Christian tradition. You could find it in the Jewish tradition because Jesus was, after all, quite Jewish. <laughs> he was never heard of Christianity. What Jesus shows us in the scriptures, the, the forgiveness, the mercy, the, the love of the outsider, is the event which is promised under the name of God. And that promise is given to us in the memory we have of Jesus in the New Testament, who is not a figure of strength, really is not. He cannot come down from the cross. He, he could blink his eyes all he wants, and he's getting crucified, and he's, he's being publicly executed. It wasn't his will, wasn't the Father's will, wasn't anybody's will. He was crucified because he, he flew in the face of the powers that be, and they got him for it. But there is a majesty there, a triumph, a call, a promise about forgiveness. So the weakness of God is a figure of, of the event, of the promise of, of, the, of the to come. I don't think there's a being out there of enormous power who holds his punches. Jack Caputo's philosophy rests on the idea that there are things that we cannot know. God names a call, a promise, an event, but not something we can describe, point to, or possess. In his book, The Weakness of God, he writes, My central idea, the thing I want engraved on my headstone, is that none of us, neither believers nor non-believers, know who we are. And this is not just through a lack of introspection or insight, but because not knowing who we are is who we are. If in some way we could say who we are, that would close the future down. It would determine us. The meaning of the future is its open-endedness, and that requires a necessary, irreducible, structural non-knowing. The, the non-knowing keeps the future open. You might even say that our, our very being is not to know who we are. And Derrida calls that the absolute secret. So he says you can have, most secrets are relative secrets, and that is there would be conditions under which we could share them. So confident uh, the secret of the confessional. Well, you know, if the priest wanted to break his vows, he could tell us the secret or state secrets. Most secrets are secrets that were that could be disclosed. The absolute secret is a secret nobody can disclose because nobody knows it. It's the secret. Robert Frost has this little poem about, he says, uh, we run around the circle and suppose the secret sits in the middle and knows. <laughs> and But we don't. So uh, I think that's um, the most interesting, the most important thing we can say about ourselves. And it's the thing that gives life its promise and its risk, its charge, its energy what Augustine calls its heart. Jack Caputo, in his book, What Would Jesus Deconstruct?, speaks of deconstruction as good news for the Christian church. But at the same time, he recognizes the limitations of critical philosophy in relation to Christianity as an institution. Institutions need constant criticism and correction, he says finally, but there must first be institutions to preserve and sustain that which is to be criticized. What I'm saying is 
parasitic upon the existence of real religions, of confessional religions or historical religions. For example, none of what I would have just said could be said if we didn't have Christianity, which preserved the memory of Jesus. But this is not a philosophy of anti-institutionalism. You need institutions, structures, traditions. What I most object to in the confessional religions is the structure of authority. You need religious traditions, you need religious stories, you need concretizations, you need the New Testament, you need memories, and you need ways to preserve those memories and pass them on and to build up an ongoing history of interpretations. So you need all these things. I'm just saying that you ha that you should, first of all, they should be non-authoritarian, and second of all, you should inhabit them ironically, meaning we understand how deep an accident of birth goes. So I, I rightly pass for a Christian. <laughs> On Ideas, you've listened to the second episode of our series, After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion. Our guest was John Caputo, Professor Emeritus at Villanova and Syracuse Universities, and the author of The Prayers and Tears of Jacques Derrida. The series continues tomorrow at this time. Today's program was prepared and presented by David Cayley, with the assistance of Dave Field and Bernie Lucht. Liz Nage is our webmaster. For information on upcoming Ideas programs, visit our website at cbc.ca slash ideas, where you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter and find this program as a podcast. You can also join us on Facebook. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. The news is next on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159.